This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on Africa News Tonight... Well, he has tried to bring in some civilians to suggest that you know, this isn't a military government. In all you know, reality, it suggests really that the military still is pulling all the strings. That was Daniel Izinga with the Africa Center for Strategic Studies speaking about deadly protests in Chad. Details coming up also. The African Union's Peace and Security Council is meeting to discuss the Ethiopia-Tigray war ahead of Monday's planned peace talks. An African affairs expert says national leaders can learn a lesson from the resignation of Britain's prime minister. And Sudan marks the 58th anniversary of toppling its first military dictatorship. We have these stories and more on African news tonight. We start with our top story. About 50 people were killed and nearly 300 injured when violence broke out in Chad yesterday as hundreds took to the streets to demand a quick transition to democratic rule. Reuters news agency says Prime Minister Saleh Kibazbo gave the death toll at a news conference and described the protests as an armed insurrection. Opposition and civil society groups had called for the protests, which would have marked the end of an initially agreed upon 18-month transition period following a military coup. Daniel Izinga, a research fellow at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, gave his reaction to the violence to VOA's Douglas Mpuga. It was easily preventable and it was anticipated, so I think it's a real tragedy. The organizations, both uh, civil society organizations but also opposition parties, had been calling for protests for the last few weeks. And October 20 became a focal point because it was the sort of final day uh, before the current junta government had said they would step aside. And so the Chadian people have mobilized to say they do not want uh, Mohammed Idris Deby to be in power. Unfortunately, violence broke out as security forces tried to disperse these protesters. The military had initially promised to hand over power to civilians. How likely is it to happen, do you think? I don't know uh, at this point. You know, the military had promised uh, that they would lead an 18-month transition, and as of today, they have, that, that time period has expired. General Mohammed Idris Deby, who is the son of the former president, Idris Deby, uh, remains in power. And while he has tried to bring in some civilians to suggest that you know, this isn't a military government, In all reality, it suggests really that the military still is pulling all the strings. And the demonstrators, uh, these opposition forces are civilians. They're they're not armed. Um, They're not violent. So to to see them, you know, violently repressed in this way is very discouraging. I think that the chances for the military to step away, you know, the sooner the better. At this point, you know, it's hard hard to see how things can move forward in a positive way if the military retains its its position in power. Demonstrations had, were banned there, but the people still seem to be undeterred. Do you think that, that this may force uh, the military to relent? 
You know, I, I'm not sure. You know, there's a long history in Chad of violent repression. I mentioned the, the current occupier of the head of state office, uh, you know, this uh, Muhammad Idris Debi is a general in the army. Um, his, his father uh, was uh, the dictator ruler, Idris Debi of Chad, for 30 years. He came to power as a result of a rebellion. He squashed multiple armed rebellions during his time in power. Um, he's also squashed several civilian mobilizations like the ones that we're seeing now uh, that challenged his authority. And so what we're really seeing is just continuity. Um, when you have these highly authoritarian governments where power is really uh, entrenched within a few people, perhaps even solely into a particular family, uh, like the case in Chad, it's very common to see that there's inherent instability to that model. And so these mobilizations are, are baked into the political system. It's part of the process. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I know that the, the African Union Commission Chair, Musa Faki Mohammed, himself a Chadian, has condemned the repression. Um, I, I believe some other uh, Western governments have also condemned the, the violence, as well as the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. So we'll see if the international community can provide enough support for the, for the civilians who are mobilizing against this repressive regime. Uh, talking of the national community, France, the former colonial power, has also condemned the repression and the killings. What role do you think France can play in bringing out a solution to this uh, mess? You know, I think that in the case of France, uh, which is former colonial power, I think, as you mentioned, best thing that French, the French authorities can do is allow the Chadians to resolve it amongst themselves. If they become too involved, risks uh, the appearance of picking a side when this is really a ch- Chadian affair, and it should be left to the civilians to make the decisions here. Uh, you know, what's lacking in Chad right now is a legitimate civilian government that could lead Chad to democratic rule. That's what opposition forces have been calling for over the last 18 months. Now that the military's self-imposed deadline has expired, uh, it would be you know, very helpful to see them actually step aside and allow the civilian political actors, civilian civil society actors, uh, to have a frank discussion about what the future of Chad will be. All parties in Chad need to, need to come together, dialogue openly, honestly, in a very inclusive representative format, and in so doing, agree upon what form of political process can get Chad out of this sort of constant instability. That was Daniel Izenga, a research fellow at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, speaking with VOA's Douglas Mpuga. The African Union's Peace and Security Council is meeting today to discuss the escalating war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region. Fred Harter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The conflict resolution body is to receive a briefing from AU Special Envoy Odesuge Nobusanjo, who is leading efforts to mediate between the Tigray rebels and Ethiopia's federal government. The United Nations Security Council was also set Friday to discuss the conflict in Ethiopia at a private meeting requested by Gabon, Ghana and Kenya this week. Both meetings are being held a day after Ethiopia announced it was on representatives to AU-sponsored peace talks on October 24. Leaders of the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front have not confirmed their attendance at the talks to take place in South Africa. AU-mediated talks were slated to begin earlier this month but were postponed for logistical reasons. In recent days, diplomats have stepped up their calls for a ceasefire in Tigray. Ethiopia said last week it plans to seize Tigray's airports and other strategic facilities. On Monday, 
It announced the capture of three towns in Tigray. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said Thursday that the U.N. and A.U. meetings demonstrates the international community's great concern about the situation. He also renewed the U.S. call for the withdrawal of Eritrean troops from Tigray, where they are supporting the Ethiopian government's offensive. The AU's Peace and Security Council last discussed Ethiopia August 4, roughly three weeks before a five-month ceasefire in Tigray ended. Since then, the situation in the conflict has dramatically changed for the worse, said the Amani Africa think tank in a briefing note Friday. Fred Harter for VOA News, Alice Alba, Ethiopia. Plans are being made for peace talks between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front to start Monday in South Africa. The two-year-old conflict in the Tigray region has led to thousands of civilian deaths and created what UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres calls an immense humanitarian crisis. Journalist Gabra Mikael Gabra Medhin is in Addis Ababa and spoke with residents about the fighting and peace talks. This is Abraha Kasa, who says war is destructive, and what people have seen and heard last year due to the war was so horrific. He thinks dialogue is the only solution to the problem. Kasa argues the Ethiopian government should lift its blockade on Tigray, and the Tigray forces should stop war provocations and come to the table for a genuine discussion. This is Daniel Barehe. He says both the Ethiopian federal government and the regional government of Tigray should stop the war and should sit for a peace deal. He says he thinks this is what has to be done. The people of Tigray need basic services like food, telecommunication, banking and others. And he says people want this problem to be solved peacefully with the help of mediators. Binyam Asras, he says, the country has been damaged immensely as a result of economic and social crisis. The war has caused enormous damage to property and taken the lives of many people. The economy has been crippled and the social bond has collapsed. He says, there is no trust among the people now. And lastly, Tawalda Wadaje calls attention to the damage done to property and lives. He says it is difficult to estimate the damage caused as a result of the war. Wadaje also says this kind of problem happens in all parts of the world, but eventually the final solution comes through negotiations and peace deals. And finally, the Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation has posted the following today. Under the banner, I stand and voice my support for Ethiopia, thousands are expected to participate in peaceful demonstrations Saturday, October 21st, and Sunday, October 22nd, in various cities across Ethiopia, including the capital Addis Ababa.
You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. As Sudan marks the 58th anniversary of toppling the first military dictatorship of General Ibrahim Aboud in a 1964 revolution, a Sudanese political analyst says military rule is no longer viable in the country. Abdul Ali Abrahim is Professor Emetris of African and Islamic History at the University of Missouri. In this excerpt from his conversation with VOA's Nabil Biagio, Ibrahim says the underpinnings of military rule in Sudan are complex. It is not just about the military. As you can see from the, the kind of the forces in called upon by the military to support them, we are talking about a conservative patriarchal force or group or component in the region. It is a military government, but a military government representing the interest of a class of people and an ideology of patriarchy that just don't want to disappear. Because we have a military that came in 1969 with leftist tendencies. So we, we, we didn't have the same military all the time. In 1958, we had a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a conservative military coup supported by conservative patriarchal components or organizations in the country. Then 1969, a leftist coup that went uh, astray. Then in uh, then the coup in 1989, that is a patriarchal thing. So the military is just the midwife, if you will, of the old society, the patriarchal society, the old forces, the traditional forces just don't want to go away. How do you see the current situation in Sudan with the military in power ending and the future of governance in Sudan in general? There is this consensus that the military has run its course because you 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 count in October Revolution, you count uh, the uh, April '85 Revolution. Then you have the 30 years. The military itself is no longer the military. Now you have the rabbit forces. One of the most important signs of that the military is, is running its course is, is, is that politics itself, that its, it, that its involvement in politics has caused her a lot of harm. The professional army is, is, is no longer the only army in the country. That is a, an important aspect of that we are witnessing the last the last coup. And it is no longer the tool of suppressing the, the yearnings for democracy or for whatever kind of system. We reach the point in which democracy is, is not just a call for a good, good form of government, of governance. People just don't want to be lorded about, to be ordered around. In family, in schools, in the job, if you look at these young people, uh, they, they would like, they would like what people would say, self-actualization. And self-actualization is tied to modernity, a modernization, the rise of the city and the town, 
in Sudan is is calling for not a new, not a demo, not a political system, not a government that is a democratic, but a society that is democratic. In the family, in the school, in, in wherever, you'd be an artist, you'd be a gay, you would be whatever you like. So that is existential rather than political, just political. That was uh, Abdullahi Ali Ibrahim, Professor Emeritus of African and Islamic History at the University of Missouri, speaking with VOA's Nabil Biajo. An African affairs expert says the continent leaders can learn a key lesson from the resignation of British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Truss stepped down yesterday, saying she could not deliver on promises made to the people. The scholar says a similar situation could happen in Africa when democracies mature to an extent that leaders understand the purpose of governance and sacrifice personal ambitions for the good of the state. Chris Isiki is president of African Association of Political Scientists and professor of African Affairs at the University of South Africa in Pretoria. He spoke with reporter Mike Mbonye. Not surprised, she was ill-equipped, ill-suited for the position, and one of the things that we hope Africa can learn, which we would assume developed democracies like the United Kingdom would have learned a long time ago, is the, fa- is the, is the fact of not using uh, either racial or ethnic or nationalistic sentiments, uh, sacrificing those on the, uh, you know, sacrificing competence on the altar of this sentiment, right? So, from the beginning, the better qualified candidate for Prime Minister was Sunak, Rishi Sunak, right? Um, but I can assure you that the Conservative Party preferred their own. When I say their own, I mean a white woman was still better than an Indian immigrant from uh, India, no matter how long he has stayed in the United Kingdom. Uh, so, so, so for me, when you compare both candidates, you know, and exactly during, if you remember during the campaign, uh, Sunak was talking about these radical uh, uh, courts and, and budget regimes that they were, Liz Truss was proposing, and he was telling them the British society was not ready for this. You need a much more cautious uh, and, and pro-people approach to resolving the economic crisis, the, the housing uh, problems, the, you know, the, the, the rising debt problems that the, 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 the Britain was, was facing. Let's come nearer home to Africa. You are you are a, you are a specialist in African affairs and a professor of uh, African uh, politics. Coming nearer home to Africa, sir, do you think that there are lessons to be learned by African leaders, given what happened in Britain yesterday, for the fact that it's never been recorded in history that an African leader resigned, saying, citing an example as uh, Liz Truss did yesterday? Do you think one day an African leader will step aside or step down? on the grounds that he or she has not met the needs or yearnings and aspirations of the people? Well, first of all, you're assuming that Liz Truss did it out of altruism. That's not correct. She did it because she had no choice. She, she, was, she was locked. She was locked. But we must also recognize the fact that she did it because she could have held on stubbornly like uh, uh, Boris Johnson did until it became really inevitable. Yes, there are lessons to learn, uh, uh, but that will be when our, our, our democracies, our governance systems mature to a point where leaders actually understand the purpose of governance, the purpose of the state. They do not 
not understand that, and that's why they hold on to power, even want to die in power, even want to uh, uh, pretend that they are well when they are sick to contest for positions in power. So, so yes, there are lessons. Um, when we understand the value of, of governance, the essence of the state, we will do better to sacrifice our personal ambitions um, for the good of the state, and that's what I think Liz Truss eventually did. That was Chris Eski, an African affairs expert at the University of South Africa, Pretoria, speaking by phone with reporter Mike Mbonnier. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big Business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators, chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is um, Karim Amir. I'm 29 years old. Uh, I'm co-founder and CTO uh, of a startup called Visual and AI Solutions, uh, or VAS as we call it. We believe the Africa Digital Innovation uh, Competition is a great opportunity for our startup uh, to showcase our innovation on, on a world stage um, and also get a constructive uh, feedback from the esteemed judges and mentors uh, we met across the stages of the competition. It was a great news for us to, to be announced as the champion of North Africa and one of the top ten finalists in the competition. And I think it's another very positive sign for us that we are uh, walking on the right track and we are actually tackling the, the right problem. I think we can all agree how, how big and vital is the agricultural market in Africa. However, farmers are facing huge challenges nowadays, including water scarcity, lack of access to scalable and cheap technology, and on top of that, climate change is making everything worse each and every season. To help farmers cope with these challenges, we are building an innovative technology called the virtual feed probing, uh, which is based on um, analyzing petabytes of satellite data uh, using our uniquely designed uh, self-supervised um, uh, AI system. So our technology uh, can have a huge impact uh, on, on farmers' lives. We are helping farmers reducing their costs using our uh, optimal irrigation scheduling and fertilization plans and also, uh, also services like early stress detection and prevention. In addition, we are also uh, helping them mitigate the risks of uh, climate change and reducing also the, the carbon and methane emissions. First thing I will do when I win the competition, I think, is uh, informing our team and colleagues. And we are really proud of them, and hopefully we can uh, celebrate together uh, winning the competition. That was Karim Amar from Egypt. His company, Vej, uses data and analytics to help farmers address water scarcity and climate change. It's one of the ten finalists in the Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups, organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center.
And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Justin Twait, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. music Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM stations.